Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by long-time healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's science, but not as you know it. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Richard Van Norden. Hello. Now, coming up this week, a hard pill to swallow because doctors have found that far from lengthening your life, taking vitamins might actually contribute to an early death. We'll also be finding out why making the computers of tomorrow could turn out to be a PC of cake, excuse the pun, because scientists have invented a transistor that's just ten atoms wide and one atom thick. How does it work? Plus, we'll be finding out how scientists have shown that the boom and the bust behaviour we see in the stock market could just be down to people's hormones. Richard. Thanks, Chris. Also this week, we're stepping over the threshold of the houses of the future with a look at the science of sustainable living. We'll be hearing from the man who's turned his home into a solar power station about a new kind of boiler that heats your home and at the same time generates some electricity for free, and how to build houses that don't cost the earth, and that's in terms of the energy it takes to run them as well as the price tag. Thank you, Richard. Plus, we've also got the answer to this week's rather electrifying question of the week. My dad always used to unplug the TV when lightning was nearby. Was this the right thing to do? Uh, excuse the pun, what is the current advice? Got a pungtastic programme for you this week. Uh, so some potentially electrifying television on the way. Not something you often hear said about telly either these days, is it? Anyway, uh, in a daring kitchen science this week, Dave's going to be putting his science where his mouth is to clean up his own urine. But will he drink it? The ultimate in water recycling. And if this will work for salty water, then I don't see why it shouldn't work for your own wee. It should work. <laughs> So how do you feel about that? Are you willing to put your own kitchen science to the ultimate test? I suppose I'm better, yes. <laughs> so is Dave going to do the ultimate in sustainable living? You'll just have to keep listening to find out. And if you've got a question for us about the science of the sustainable living of the future and the homes of tomorrow, then you can get in touch. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.net. Well, let's kick off with a look at some of this week's top science news stories. And this one certainly is no exception to a top science news story because it looks, Richard, like if you do something in the name of good health, and that's take vitamin tablets, you could actually be contributing to an early death. This is a piece of research which has been done by a group of researchers at the University of Copenhagen, the lead researchers Goran Bielakovich, and he and his colleagues have done a meta-analysis. And this is where you take lots of little studies and all of those could be biased because when you do little studies, there's always the possibility of making errors. If you merge lots of little studies together and get very big numbers of participants, though, you can iron out a lot of the errors and the noise and statistical noise in the data. And what you can end up with is something much more powerful, which has the ability to detect much more subtle trends. They did this with 67 studies, which they merged together. Over 230,000 people were included in these studies, and they were case controls. So they were placebo-controlled trials where people were given vitamin tablets or they were given placebos and their outcomes were compared and they were a mixture of healthy people and also people with diseases. And what they found was that uh, far from what you might expect, taking vitamin tablets 
at, the, at, at best does not lengthen your life. The mortality rates of people was not extended by taking vitamin tablets. And when they focused down on the 46 trials that they felt had the least bias attached to them, so they were most reliable, they found that they could actually lead to an early death. The mortality rates were higher. If people were taking vitamin A, their mortality rate was 16% higher compared with people on placebos. Vitamin E, 4% higher. And beta-carotene, which is a, a relative of vitamin A, 7% higher. So far from being the panacea that we would like to think and what the vitamin industry would tell you they are, they might actually be bad for you and you'd probably be better off saving your money. So what's the vitamin industry had to say about it then? Well, the vitamin industry, of course, have, have said that actually they've focused on people with terminal diseases or people who are already advanced, done well, and therefore if you put these into these kind of people, you're going to see a biased result anyway. But it's just not true. With these kind of numbers and with this kind of extensive study in both healthy people and people who don't have diseases included, as well as people who are at, have advanced diseases like heart disease, you, you can expect to iron out those things. And, and I think that the bottom line is Fruit and vegetables are the best way to get these nutritional supplements. Getting them out of a packet is not the way we've evolved to live. We have evolved to get our nourishment from nature. That's what food's for. And you, your body works to absorb these micronutrients in the context in which they're found naturally. And that means fruit and vegetables. Five portions a day is what the studies continuously tell us. And it's true. Oh, well, thanks for that, Chris. Um, good to know. Well, uh, also this week, pretty amazingly, people have made transistors just one atom thick and ten atoms wide. So a transistor is a little thing that, that switches your current on and off. It's in all your computer chips, all your electronics. And these researchers at the University of Manchester have carved these unimaginably tiny transistors from graphene. That's a flat sheet of carbon atoms. That's predicted by some basically to oust silicon as the basis of future computing. Just to ask a simple question, why do we need smaller transistors? This, this is tough to do. Why do we need to do it? Well, we need smaller transistors because we're basically trying to pack more and more stuff onto one chip. Now, the smaller you get with silicon, things heat up, we start to lose electrons, the electronics doesn't work. We need to keep going smaller. Because well, they're getting so small that the bits are literally interfering with the thing next door. That's so, right. So the yeah. components don't work very reliably. Exactly. So there's a finite limit, basically. On there, there is a finite limit. Uh, and you might have heard of a guy called uh, Gordon Moore, I think, hmm. who, who said Moore's Law that said transistors should... Uh, uh, the number of transistors on the chip should double roughly every two years. Well, to keep that going, we're going to have to ditch silicon in maybe 2020, maybe 2030, and that's where a material like graphene might come in. How do you make these transistors? Because something at the scale of an individual atom must be an incredible achievement to be able to manipulate this and, and to make it. Well, it's actually done by etching them out of larger pieces of material, uh, which, is, which is pretty amazing because people have tried to make uh, sort of transistors using some kind of clever liquid gas, supercooling, building one atom at a time. This is actually made by etching and it works at room temperature, which I think is staggering. Is it scalable? Could we see this working at the, the level of a whole microprocessor or is this literally making one of these things and that's not much use to anybody? Well, the idea of etching is that you could then do it by machine. Um, and I don't know if one could do it at the level of microprocessor yet. I mean, we'll have to see. But this is a, a really great start. Why is graphene so good then? Why not any old substance? Oh, well, graphene's extremely unusual because the electrons actually shoot through graphene with almost no resistance. They don't, they don't seem to hit atoms in the way and, and bounce back. They just seem to shoot through. So it's got this amazing property to conduct electricity really, really fast. And that's actually because of the property of it's a completely flat 2D sheet. It's, it's the way the uh, atoms and the electrons uh, combine in that particular symmetry type of sheet. Very interesting. In fact, the problem with making a graphene transistor is the electrons shoot through too fast 
and you can't switch the current on and off. It just keeps going. So this is quite a feat, the way they've done it here. They've, they've sort of changed the width of this uh, flat ribbon that's uh, only a few atoms wide, and that has changed the electronic properties. That's how they've managed to control these careering electrons. Well, I hope that they get my energy bill down soon because my computer cost me a fortune to run. Now, back to the macro scale now and the London Stock Exchange. Very interesting. We're all well well acquainted with things like boom and bust and the boom and bust economy and, and the dot bomb era of the year 2000 when stocks and shares in computer companies and dot coms just crashed. But why does this happen? Well, a group of researchers at the University of Cambridge, that's Joe Herbert and John Coates, decided to find out how hormones might be involved in the process. So they recruited 17 financial traders down in London and they monitored them for an eight-day period. They took twice-daily saliva samples at 11 o'clock in the morning and 4 o'clock in the afternoon and they were testing for two hormones. One, testosterone. These are all blokes they they included in their study because they found it quite hard to find a woman who worked there, actually. There were were lots of men and four women employees in the whole company they worked with, so they mainly focused on the men. The other hormone they looked at was cortisol, which is the body's stress hormone. And the really exciting thing was when they looked at how much money these people were making each day, there was a very strong relationship between their 11 o'clock in the morning testosterone level and their 4 p.m. profit. So in other words, if they made money that day, their testosterone level early in the morning was 25% higher than normal. And so it looks like a high testosterone level pumps you up and primes you to make money. Their other hypothesis was when they were losing money, they'd be really stressed. So the cortisol levels would be very high. They didn't find that. What they did find instead is when the market's very volatile, hard to read, hard to predict, then you get high levels of cortisol. And when you map those findings onto how the stock market works, it tells you a lot. It tells you why we get boom and bust. Because when people are pumped up with testosterone, they're much less risk averse. They take risks, they stick their neck out, and the market will support them. People will make lots of money because they they will take chances and they think they're going to win, so they do. That's the winner effect. But then you slide into some kind of crash And the consequence of that is lots of cortisol gets made. This makes people nervous, risk-averse. They stop investing and you get that long slide, which takes ages to recover from. So does that mean we should be screening traders before they enter the market floor? (laughs) Well, I've I've suggested that next time I phone my stockbroker, well, if I had one, what we should be doing is asking them what their testosterone level is before asking for their financial advice. Because if it's high and the market's doing well, then you've got a good chance they'll make you some money that day. And maybe this is a way to control how the stock market behaves, as you say, yeah. (laughs) It could be. But the bottom line is that it's interesting to see how hormones could actually underlie London's financial markets, where previously we all thought it was some complex mathematical models. Uh, It's actually all down to two basic hormones. And women have them too. So women stockbrokers would be expected to probably behave identically. Laying the facts bare, the naked scientists. It's The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and Richard Van Norden. This week we're talking about the science of sustainable living and in a second we'll find out from, about the guy who's turned his home into well, what you could really describe as a power station. But first, on this week's show, it's, since it's all about sustainable living, let's get this week's Kitchen Science underway and join Ben and Dave who've been soaking up the sun. For this week's Kitchen Science, we're thinking about something that all the houses of the future will need to consider, and that's ways to cut down on wastewater and, if possible, reuse water. So, Dave, how is it best that we should indeed cut down on our use of water? Well, the first thing you should do is not waste water. So use efficient appliances like dishwashers and washing machines and not leave taps running. But this time we're going to look at a way of purifying water to something which you can drink from just about anything. So this would work from rainwater, for example? Oh, rainwater's already pure, so you don't really have to do it for that. So it would actually work with things like dishwater, even seawater. 
So is this method of purifying water something that people can do at home already, or do you need lots of expensive desalination equipment? No, it's actually really simple to do at home. All you need is a dark container, like maybe a non-stick saucepan, um, some cling film, some water, and a small cup. We're out in your garden today. Now, surely I would have thought if you're looking at conserving water, we'd be in the kitchen or perhaps the bathroom. The other thing that we need for this experiment is the sun. So you want to do it on a very sunny day. And today's reasonably sunny, so hopefully it should work. Well, I guess we should take advantage of the sun before it goes away. So what do we actually need to do? Well, the first thing you'll need is some water to purify. You could use dishwater or something like that, but we're going to make some salt water by adding about 5, 10 grams of salt to about half a litre of water. OK, now salty water really isn't pleasant to drink and it does dehydrate you, so why are we starting with salt water? Well, salt water is a really easy test because you can taste salt really easily so you can tell how well it's been purified. And also, if it works on salt water, there's loads of salt water in the world, so it could be a useful process. OK, well, how do we actually set this up? Well, the first thing we need to do is make our salt water. So I'm going to put the 5-10 grams of salt in the water. And this is ordinary uh, household table salt? Yeah, perfectly normal. Any old salt will do, as long as you can taste it. And then give that a good stir. OK, that's fairly well stirred in. Do we need it all to dissolve? It's not vital. What's important is if you taste it, it should taste salty. And does it? Yeah. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> So now we have some very salty water. That really doesn't look like pleasant stuff to drink. So what do we have to do next? Well, the next thing to do is to put the water in the saucepan. So you want to put maybe a centimetre of water in the bottom of the saucepan. Is there any particular reason we're using a saucepan? Well, we're trying to absorb the sun, so we want a nice dark container. And this saucepan is nice and black on the inside. So you could actually use anything that would be a nice dark colour. So a black bucket would work? Yeah, perfectly well. OK, so we'll pour that into the saucepan now. We've just put about a centimetre of water, so enough to cover the base, but not too much. Yeah, if you do, it'll take longer if you put too much water in there. So, a saucepan of salty water, a sunny day, what's the next thing? Well, the next thing we want to do is put our collecting glass in the bottom. That's the shot glass we've got. Yep, I'm going to put that in the middle of the saucepan, and then stretch cling film over the top of the saucepan. OK, so we're just using ordinary household cling film and we're just going to stretch it across the top of the saucepan like you might do if you had some leftovers that you wanted to keep fresh. Yeah, that's exactly right. You want to do this quite loosely so you can make a depression in the bottom and you want to hold it down with a stone or I'm going to use a little bit of the salt water I was making earlier. And that's caused a depression in the middle of the cling film so that's now dipping in in the middle. Is that what we need? Yeah, that's the idea. You want that to dip in over the centre of that glass. And just to help things along a bit, I'm going to tip the saucepan towards the sun so we get as much sun inside as possible. OK, so we have a saucepan that's tilted towards the sun with a bit of really salty water in the bottom. And across the top there's some cling film which has a bit more of the water on top of it to create a depression. We've lined the depression up exactly with the shot glass. And this is going to purify water for us, is it, Dave? That's the plan, yes. And so how long have I got to wait to get myself a nice drink of pure water? It'll depend on how much water you want and how sunny the day is, but an hour or two should do it. OK, well, I'm afraid, Dave, I have some bad news for you, because I, of course, trust your science completely, and I wouldn't be here doing kitchen science with you if I didn't, and I'm looking forward to a glass of pure water. But after we had a bit of a live problem with a kitchen science a few weeks ago it seems that dr chris is a little less certain of your science and he wants you to prove it yes 
And so he wants you to do the ultimate in water recycling. And if this will work for salty water, then I don't see why it shouldn't work for your own wee. Cheers, Chris. Um, it should work. <laughs> so how do you feel about that? Are you willing to put your own kitchen science to the ultimate test? I, I should be all right. I probably won't die even if it goes horribly wrong. Well, in that case, Dave, I guess you better go off to the toilet to um, prepare. I suppose I'd better, yes. <laughs> so Dave has gone off to the toilet to prepare the second part of this rather unusual kitchen science, but we will come back to you later on in the show to let you know if we really have been able to purify drinking water from water that Dave's already drank once. Well, good luck there, Dave. I mean, if I was in your position, I think I'd do a little bit of switching of beakers. But, uh, you know, I trust your science implicitly. So stay tuned to find out if Dave really will drink his own purified urine. And if you've got any questions on the science of sustainability or any other science topic, email us, chris at thenakedscientist.com. And uh, Stephen Lowestoft has got in touch, and he says, when you're given an injection, why is the doctor or nurse very careful to make sure there is no air in the barrel of the syringe? Because when you cut yourself, it doesn't matter. There's air all around the wound. The answer is, uh, Steve, this is good practice, because if you're putting injections into, say, a vein, and you were to inject a bit of air, you'd get what's called an air embolus, because the air bubble would float along the vein back to the heart, it would go through the right side of your heart and then into your lungs, and it would lodge in a blood vessel which is a bit smaller than it is, and the result is that blood would then be stuck behind this bubble of air, and you'd have to wait for the bubble to slowly be absorbed back into the bloodstream. Probably pretty trivial if you just have one-off injections, but if you were to have a lot of injections, this could actually compromise the circulation through the blood. And the other point is, if you're having an injection into a muscle, it's pretty painful. And the more volume that you inject, the more painful it is. So if you inject more volume of air as well as injection material, you're just going to make the experience even more unpleasant. So we try and avoid that where possible. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks. The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com. It is The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and Richard Van Norden. This week on the show, we're looking into ways to live sustainably. We've already heard how Ben and Dave are using sunlight to get drinking water from waste and Dave's urine. But what about using the sun to generate electricity? Well, solar panels seem to be turning up on rooftops all over the place. But are they really worth using? You may be generating electricity for free, but how long does it take to pay back the costs of buying them in the first place? And as with all technology, you need to use energy to make it in the first place. So do they cost the environment more than they give back? Well, thanks, Richard. To find out, earlier this week I spoke to Australia's Dr Karl Krishelnitsky and he's recently turned his home in Sydney into the solar equivalent of a power station. I've installed upon my roof one of the ten biggest domestic, that is in a private house, solar arrays in Australia. It's about four and a half kilowatts. And since September, I have generated about 3,000 kilowatt hours. I have used 1,800 kilowatt hours. And so, in fact, I am now a primary producer of electricity. I su supply electricity to the grid. Shove it in the daytime, suck it back at night. So how did you actually go about setting it up and, and why? Why was as an example to show that it could be done and that it should be done. 
How is very straightforward. You just find the appropriate people and give them a big bag of money. You just open your wallet and you repeat, help yourself, help yourself, help yourself. I've got 27 cells on the roof, 165 watts. They cost $1,800 each. Then there's the inverter, that's $7,000. Permission to the council for $2,000. I had to put in the same permission as a development application as if I was putting in a 10-story block of flats and labour 2000 So basically an average person's yearly salary is what it cost. How long do you think it'll take you to pay that back in terms of how much you're getting in terms of the electricity you're selling back to the grid? Um, at the moment, probably around 250 years. Seriously? In most of Australia, you buy it at a certain cost, you sell it back at the same cost even though you are taking a load off the grid. In Germany, they recognise this and they pay you seven times as much as you pay. So if you buy it at X, you can sell it back at seven times X. And so then the payback time is a lot shorter. And the payback time in energy is about... 18 to 40 months, depending on what part of the world you are in, what cloud cover you have, etc., etc. For where I am, in sunny Sydney, the payback time is 18 months. The cells have a guarantee of 25 years, but they're confidently expected to last for 40 years. Now, that's all very well if you live in Sydney, because having lived in sunny Sydney, I, I know there's enormous amounts of sun there. But how would the setup here compare because most days it's cloudy in summer there's a bit of sun so how much sun do you need to get in order to make this system work um with your energy costs the way they are in england you'd need probably a seven kilowatt array maximum and you would be running it at lower efficiency because you would have less sunlight at the moment, solar cells are expensive because the price of the basic silicon has gone up by a factor of eight over the last few years. However, when I was an engineer, one thing I learned was do not reinvent the wheel. Nature, via trees, is doing a wonderful job of turning sunlight into electricity. And once we humans learn to copy that better, I'm sure that we'll get cheaper solar cells. So part of the energy equation will be solved by having every roof in the world stuffed full of solar electricity and solar hot water. And it doesn't matter whether you're getting lots of sunlight or not, at least you're doing something to get energy for free with regard to carbon dioxide being the cost. How much carbon dioxide have you prevented going out from into the atmosphere because you've set this up? 4.9 tonnes. I read proudly tonight before I came into the studio. So have you got some kind of gauge that says this is how many carbon dioxide equivalents you have sold back to the grid? Yes, it tells me uh, how many cycles the grid is producing, what volts they're producing, and so depending on whether it's peak hour or not, the cycles go up or down, the volts go up or down, you know, and the the, the big uh, trains full of 2,000 people in the subway start to pull out and you can see the voltage suddenly drop as the big load comes on. Um, so th this tells me my peak output. In high summer, when I have the best orientation with regard to the sun, I can typically produce 32 kilowatt hours a day when I'm using about 18, 15. Now, as we're headed past the equinox, heading towards winter on our side of the equator, uh, I've been generating 24 a day. I'm still ahead of my 18 kilowatt hours. And I've come across a family in Perth who run their house on three kilowatt hours a day. Your fridge, 
uses one and a half kilowatt hours. So they must be extremely frugal, and I'm very happy to learn from them how they achieve this magnificent economy of electricity. But there's more to running your house than just the electricity. Presumably you must be heating Mm. your water. So is that included in your equation? Uh, Water we do via gas because to generate electricity at some distant place and then send the electricity across, you get big losses. It turns out the losses are less if you pipe the gas and then you burn it on an instantaneous hot water heater rather than a storage hot water heater. And, of course, we're busy planning how to dig a hole in the front yard and put in a 50-tonne underground water tank, which should be able to float us through the year so we don't have to suck any water from the grid. But we will still have to suck gas from the gas supplier to turn that cold water into hot water. And then the next stage of the equation, of course, will be to put hot water on the roof as well. Dr. Carl Krzyzelnicki there, chatting to Chris about how solar power is a long-term but a worthwhile investment. Although you need to bear in mind, of course, that we get much less sun over here in the UK, so the time to pay off the investment would be a bit longer. 250 years. What do you think? 350 years instead of 250. It's a long time, isn't it? Something like that. Now, how else can we generate electricity at home? Well, Elaine Ball is from Baxi Group, and they've developed a household boiler system that they're actually trialling for the first time here in the UK. It's called the Ecogen, which, as well as heating your house and your water, it also generates electricity. And now here's the really good news. The electricity effectively comes for free. So let's find out from Elaine how it all works. Hello, Elaine. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientist. Good to have you with us. How does it work? Well, the Ecogen, as you said, is a gas appliance that um, when it burns and generates heat, we also get electricity as well. The basis of the product is a Stirling engine, which works similar to an internal combustion engine, except that the unit is sealed and has helium in it, and we have the gas burner external to the unit. What we do is we burn the gas at the top of the engine, and we cool the gas at the bottom of the engine, and that, with a displacer, basically moves the hot and cool gas around and drives a piston. Oh, right, and then then the piston is connected to some kind of generating system. Well, the the piston's actually um, free, and it's got gas bearings around it, which helps with uh, minimising the losses. And around the piston, when it moves, we have magnets and wire coils that produce electricity directly at 50 hertz, which means it can be fed directly into the home or exported back to the grid. This sounds like a bit of a no-brainer. It sounds fantastic. Why has no-one done this before? Well, in the past, um, there were a lot of engineering challenges with, with actually getting the technology to work in an affordable and reliable way and also in an application that was uh, good for the technology because when you're trying to use it to drive a mechanical energy, there are a lot of heat losses. But because we're using it for a heating appliance, we're actually good to get those heat losses because we then use that heat to heat hot water for the home, the radiators and the hot water cylinder, for example. So how much heat could it put into the average home? Is it just more an electricity generator, more a boiler, or is it really genuinely fulfilling both roles? The great thing about the technology is that it's um, generating electricity whilst producing heat. We call it a heat-led technology. And generally, when you look at people's electricity demand, it's generally when they want heat at the same time. So it's great. You have your, your demand for heat in your dwelling, and then you, know, you produce electricity at the same time. We produce one kilowatt of electricity, and the Stirling engine itself produces about six kilowatts of thermal energy. And then we have a second heater to give up to uh, another 18 kilowatts, which is great because there's lots of different house types across the country, different heat demands. And because it all modulates down, it will basically suit the heat demand to the house. Uh, And so it 
it meets a lot of applications. You've installed this for a number of people who are in your sort of test run. How are they finding it? They're really, really pleased with the unit because they've already seen um, fuel savings, um, cuts in their energy bill. Um, and we've also got a number of the utilities on board and when they're exporting energy back to the grid, they're also getting paid for that um, energy as well. So what sort of fuel costs and electricity bill changes are the people who've tested this seeing? What, what are they getting out of it? Well, we're still seeing about 40% reduction in uh, fuel bills. If we take one uh, field trial in Preston, in four months, the boiler actually generated nearly 800 kilowatt hours for a demand that was needed in the home of about 1,200 kilowatt hours. Um, and because Terry was getting um, a net benefit from selling back, he was basically getting two-thirds of his electricity for free. But have we not had a problem where some of the utility companies don't play ball? Dr Carl in Australia was saying that you only get paid one-to-one -one for the amount of electricity you sell back. In Germany, you get a, a better deal. In some cases in the UK, the companies won't buy the electricity off, off of you. You end up giving it to them for free. No, and that's where there's a lot of consultation going on at the moment because we're trying to get a standard and a, a sort of a fair quota across all the utilities. So at the moment it really is dependent on which utility you're with and what um, system they're going to use. And there's a lot of debate at the moment about feed-in tariffs and whether we should adopt that in the UK or provide capital investment up front through the um, government's carbon emission reduction target programme. So what kind of benefit are you going to get in terms of reducing carbon dioxide emissions? Well, when we look at the typical average annual usage of a boiler, we get between two and a half to 3,000 run-hours a year. If we look at an existing condensing gas boiler today um, and compare this product, then if we get 3,000 run-hours, then the homeowner is going to save probably two to £300 a year versus uh, an existing boiler. And in terms of carbon, that's equivalent to about a tonne of carbon dioxide a year for each appliance. So you know, if you think about the... 22 million homes in the UK and the number of gas boilers that are sold, then you know it doesn't take a lot of maths to think of uh, a lot of boilers is a, a lot of carbon dioxide saved. Running an, a, an engine in your garage sounds noisy. Are, are people complaining that these things are noisy, Elaine? Well, actually, we've, as well as having uh, the very first units in garages, um, we installed our second field trial just before Christmas, and we've got a number of units in kitchens. Where the Stirling engine benefits over the internal combustion engine is that you've got none of these internal explosions, and it's a very quiet operation. So the noise levels of uh, the products we've installed are, are typical to a normal gas boiler, and uh, you know we've got, as I say, units in kitchens and, and no complaints so far. Does it take some special infrastructure to plumb it in? And lastly, and briefly, what's the, the cost to install this in someone's house? Well, because it's based very much on the sort of traditional um, gas technology, in terms of the, the gas and the heating side, it's the same installation that a, a normal uh, gas engineer plumber could do today. The additional complication is the uh, requirement of a new meter to be able to export to the grid and therefore getting involved with your utility to make that meter connection. So typically it shouldn't be much more of an onerous task than a gas boiler today. And so when can I get one? Well, we're looking to bring them to market um, at the end of this year, beginning of next year. Thanks very much, Elaine. That was Elaine Bull from Baxi Group, who've come up with the EcoGen, a way to heat your home and at the same time produce some free electricity to help you cut your power bills.
Still to come, in this week's Question of the Week, we're going to be finding out whether you should unplug your TV in a thunderstorm, and we'll see if Dave really does have enough faith in his experiment to taste the water which has been purified from his own urine. So if you've got any questions or you'd like to join us on this week's show, you can email myself, that's Dr Chris Smith, on chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist Podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. It is Chris Smith and Richard Van Norden here on The Naked Scientist. If you want to check us out in Second Life, you go to the Silands continent and you go to Naked Scientist's headquarters, which is in there. So far, we've found out how we can use technology to help us generate cheaper, greener electricity. But it's not just energy we have to think about to be, to be sustainable. And uh, Asif Din will be joining us very soon to explain how architects can help by making us green by design. But first of all, we sent Mira Senthalingam to the Science Museum's Science of Survival exhibit to discover the importance of being water-wise. This week, I've come to the Science Museum in London to visit the new Science of Survival exhibition, which opened last week. The exhibition covers important issues facing our future and our survival, looking into things like global resources, climate change, and the options we have towards a sustainable future. As soon as you walk in, you meet four characters, Buzz, Eco, Tech and Doug, who all have very different views and opinions about how we can have a sustainable future. And throughout the exhibition, each character provides their opinions to give you an idea of just how differently people can see these issues. The main content developer on this exhibition is Melinda Campbell, and she's here with me now to tell me more about the future and our survival. Hello, Melinda. Hi. What's the point you're trying to get across? Well, the first thing we do in the science of survival is we look at different areas that every human being needs to survive. So we look at drinking, eating, enjoying, getting from place to place in moving, and building, which is about regulating body temperature and protecting yourselves from the elements. The fun part about the science of survival is that each section allows kids and families to make their own decisions about what kind of future they want. And on your survival card, the decisions you make and the visual representation of what you created will be remembered for you. And then when you go to Future City at the very end of your visit, you'll be able to see the implications of your choices in your very own neighborhood for 2050. Another section here in the exhibition is all about drinking and our water supplies in the future. Now, one of the consultants on this section was Jacob Tompkins from Waterwise. Hello, Jacob. Hello. So what was involved with the exhibition here? What are the problems with our future water sources? At the moment, we use about 150 litres per person every single day. It's a huge amount of water. And what we're seeing is we're using more, so that amount we're using is rising every single day because we're taking more showers, we're doing more washing, things like this. And at the same time, we're living in the drier parts of the country, we're living in smaller households, and what climate change really means is more floods and more droughts. So there's going to be less water, it's going to be more difficult to get hold of, and also we're going to be using more. And so what can we do about this to ease the situation? Amazingly, it's actually quite simple. As I say, we use about 150 litres every day. About 50 litres of that is simply wasted. And it sounds like a cliche, but, you know, turning the tap off on your brush your teeth. If everyone did that, that would provide enough water to supply the whole of Scotland. 
knocking a minute off your shower, don't leave the tap running to get a drink of fresh water, fill a bottle and put it in the fridge. Simple things like this, but don't cut back on cleaning and drinking, obviously. One of the ways you're getting the message across in the section is through a game. There's various things mentioned in that, like fog farms. So are those potential sources of water in the future? Probably not in the UK, but it's already being used in the Ethiopian highlands and in parts of South America. They already put up meshes, large nets, which actually catch dew from fog and mist and then condense those. Now, in the UK, we're not that short of water, but we do need to be looking at simple, low-tech solutions like reusing sewage water. Might not sound very nice, but what we could do is we could look at the water from our sewage treatment works, look at purifying that, and you could do it through natural means by reed beds and things like that, and using that to reaugment our rivers or reusing it for supply. So as well as the games here, there are cabinets showing examples of the solutions. So what kind of things have we got on display here? It's quite encouraging. There's a lot of low-tech solutions on there. One of the most fun ones is something that's used quite widely in Africa, to play pumps. They're basically like ordinary things that you find in a playground, seesaws and roundabouts and things. And the kids, actually, while they're playing, pump water. There are also some fairly simple water purification devices. The technical term is flocculate, but what they effectively do is take the particles of dirt or salt out of the water, settle them out so you've got the fresh drinking water on top. As well as that, there's one that's just come into the UK, actually, which is putting your basin on top of your toilet system. I actually saw that. I thought it was quite a good idea. Yeah. When you wash your hands, about a third of the water we use gets flushed down the toilet. So what it's doing is you wash your hands and then that fills up your toilet system. This is grey water reuse, we call this. Grey water and rainwater are being used a lot. There are simple ways that water that is slightly dirty can potentially be reused. Well, so you say the average person uses 150 litres, and that's just on their own individual needs, but obviously water is used on larger scales just in consumer products and things, aren't they? Yeah, there's something we call embedded water, which is basically the amount of water that goes into growing a carrot or making the tie I'm wearing or into the car that people drive. If you factor that in, we all use 3,400 litres every single day. So there is massive fluxes of water around the world. And what we need to start thinking about is how much water has gone into the things we're using and where has it come from. The way that people start to think about carbon now, we should also start thinking about water and asking questions, basically. Is it being grown efficiently? Is water being wasted? That was Jacob Tompkins from Waterwise, making sure we all turn our taps off. Now, I've had some time to go on all the activities here, so I've come to the Future City with content developer Melinda Campbell, who I spoke to earlier, and I'm going to see what kind of world my decisions have resulted in. Do you want to <laughs> scan in with your survival card? OK, I'm just going to scan in now. OK, so it's welcomed me to my city in 2050. In this case, you've designed something that... For your design your own vehicle, you've got something that travels on rails. You've also chosen biofuel to power it. So what this community is showing you is you're actually going to need an entire farm to create the crops for the biofuel. So this is a little bit of infrastructure you might not have thought about when you designed your vehicle. But because it travels on rails, you're going to need these things in your community. So I guess the exhibition is getting everyone to think about their futures. What is the future of our survival? I think one of the key messages in the science of survival is that the future is not set. So we try to inspire kids to realize that this is about their daily life, that they can make positive choices for a sustainable future. We all have a part to play in making it an exciting one. Jacob Tompkins from Waterwise and the Science Museum's Melinda Campbell. They were talking to Mira earlier this week about the importance of reducing water wastage which is something Dave should know about this week, because later on we'll be finding out if he will put his science where his mouth is and actually drink water 
purified from his own urine. The ultimate in sustainable living. Well, before Dave does that, we're going to be talking now with uh, our guest this week, who's Asif Din. He joins us from the sh- uh, in the studio from Z Factory. He's one of the arch- uh, architects who's involved in BedZ, that's the Beddington Zero Energy Development. Now, this is a housing development that produces or aims to produce all of the energy that it consumes within its site boundaries. That's a pretty ambitious target, Asif. Uh, yes, hello. Um, <laughs> How do you plan to do that? Well, uh, it was originally planned to have a combined heat and power plant on site, which has uh, the capability of producing all of its electricity and hot water on site over the course of a year. So during the winter, it might import a bit of energy, but during the summer, it will be exporting. So the houses do need heating, but you're doing it much more efficiently because you've got your own local power station, basically. Well, matter of fact... Um, BedZ actually has as much insulation, so you do away with having your usual central heating system. And uh, so it's got virtually zero heating uh, dwellings, but on the hot water side, you still have to provide the hot water. Sure, because you can't do without a hot shower every night. But um, So talk to us about how architecture is going in terms of producing houses, which we view are the sustainable dwellings of tomorrow. What are the big sort of targets and priorities? One of the big ones is, as Dr. Carl was saying, is sort of actually producing enough energy from your rooftop to actually power your home. Beddington Zero Energy Development actually does that on a site-wide scale, but the actual aim would be to do it on a single house or retrofit a house so that you produce all of the energy it needs from your house. They're two rather different targets, though, aren't they? So retrofitting my uh, manky old cottage, uh, so that it was as good and as energy efficient as one of the houses you're designing and building now, it is a very different target, isn't it? It is, very different. Uh, but there are certain things that you can still do. You can still buy A-rated appliances, so when you finish with your washing machine or your fridge, you could get a more efficient one. And by reducing the amount of energy, then you might be able to put a couple of PV panels on the roof and power a few bits and pieces of your house. What about in terms of the way houses are laid out? Because it's very much on vogue at the moment to have your own dwelling, which is a detached cottage, but that's got four walls exposed to the elements, therefore the heat loss must be big. So should we be going back to the Victorian era, where everyone lived in terraces? Uh, Bed set is actually arranged in terraces, and yes, uh, if you are, live in an apartment building or something that's surrounded by quite a few on the sides, then yes, you are going to consume a lot less energy than having an exposed cottage in the middle of nowhere being swept with wind and what about government regulations Uh, what's the government saying we should do when we build new houses these days to make sure that they're efficient and and energy efficient they don't need excess carbon dioxide to go out into the atmosphere the government has put together a code for sustainable homes which next year will become mandatory for housing associations will be what's called code level four which will slowly ramp up until i think it's 2018 when all of their homes should be zero energy or zero energy target oh wow so uh, when you say zero energy they're they're literally do not consume they're not net consumers of energy they're not net consumers of energy they all produce all of uh, what they require from their own site boundaries my god but how i mean that's the thing because you know i know how much energy my house uses so Mm. how is that achievable it's actually starting from very basics. It's about lifestyle. It's about using the right appliances, energy-efficient appliances. It's also, as I said, putting enough insulation in the walls so you don't actually need a proper heating system. But if you put lots of insulation in the walls, the walls are much thicker, and developers don't like that because they can't get as many houses on the site. Uh, yes, but uh, they will save on not being able to sort of like put in a central heating system. So it's balancing one thing with another. 
Now, when you say a combined heat and power station, mm. tell us a bit about how that would work and how it's laid out, and why won't there be pollution tipped onto the houses from that, having that in their backyard? It's quite a clean burn technology. The one at Bedzed was a, it's a modified diesel engine, effectively, that takes the gas off wood chip, then puts it through a processor, then produces energy from a turbine. But the turbine has a jacket of water around it, and that produces its hot water. So rather than having huge cooling towers, as you would do in a proper power station, the heat is not dumped and it's actually used for a good purpose. How many people can you have in one of these developments benefiting in this way? First question. Second question, what happens when it goes wrong in the middle of winter? Everyone's cold. Uh, you would always have a backup of some description. You'd always have a backup as an emergency. Hot water bottle. Well, no, no. <laughs> it wouldn't, wouldn't be that bad. But um, you would have, say, an immersion heater on your cylinder like you would do even now so that if it does break down at any point, you would still get hot water. How much do you think you can save people in terms of their household bills from the kinds of houses you're designing now? Well, Bedsed's proven to be a 90% reduction on space heating, about a 50% reduction on water and about a 50% reduction on electricity. Those are pretty Im- impressive results they are thank you very much well that was Asim Din from Z Factory and he designs houses energy neutral great step towards sustainable living it's time now to welcome uh, Diana O'Carroll back to the studio uh, to take on this week's question Diana is is your lifestyle sustainable uh, well, I'm going to surprise you now and say that in most respects, actually, it is, uh, except for cake. That's not terribly sustainable in my life, I'm afraid. Um, and that's not very shocking to most people, I know. But here is a question that is. Hello there. My name is Clive Wilkins. I'm from Sutton Coalfield. I have a question. My dad always used to unplug the TV when lightning was nearby. Was this the right thing to do? Uh, excuse the pun. What is the current advice? Thank you. So, what horrid things can a thunderstorm do to you and your home? My name is uh, John Hammond, and I work at the Met Office. On average in the UK itself, uh, we have one in around three million people that are struck by lightning each year. That's quite a high number. Most of those do survive. But overall, I mean, the people that have been struck have been doing anything from literally using electrical appliances. We've heard uh, of accounts of people that have been ironing and they've been blown across the room because the lightning has come down uh, that particular way. If you are concerned, then I would certainly unplug an electrical appliance to try and break that link where the lightning therefore can't go and make contact with the ground ultimately. It turns out lightning can melt your appliances even if it hits a nearby house or overhead cable. If you want to save an expensive telly, then unplugging it from the aerial and the mains might be the right idea. But does the aerial help to make it more attractive to lightning? My name's Dr Bob Howlett. I'm a reader in electrical and electronic engineering in the School of Environment and Technology at the University of Brighton. Whether you plug your television in or not when there's lightning around, it's an interesting question. I think it's one of those things where the answer really is it doesn't make too much difference. It certainly doesn't make any difference as to whether you get struck by lightning or not because that is down to the distribution of charge in the clouds and the distribution of charge over the nearby buildings and, would you believe, whether the, the shape of the building, whether there are sharp points on it and things like that. So one little television aerial isn't going to make any difference that way. If you do get struck by lightning, the current will come down the aerial cable, and if your television is plugged in, it may be a good thing because the television will melt down and absorb the energy. 
The bad thing is that the cathode ray tube may explode, which is, which is not very nice, but the television would act like a nice little fuse and absorb some of the energy. If it's not plugged in, the energy is going to go somewhere else. So there will be a spark from the plug to the nearest Earth point, which might be a radiator, or it might be you, or it might be your dog walking past, or whatever, but you don't know what. Even if nothing happens to the television aerial, the wet walls will be quite good electrical conductors. So you'll get quite large current coming down the walls at the outside of the building. And those changing currents will cause magnetic fields, which in turn will induce EMFs or voltages in what could be any of the electrical equipment in the house. So I'm afraid the answer is there's probably not much you can do about it apart from lying back and watching the show. So during a storm, you could make a potential difference in your life expectancy by letting the TV act as a big fuse. Well, it's much better to listen to the radio anyway. Absolutely, and that was a shocking pun. Ba-boom. Uh, uh, so I can let you get away with that one. I've had a really good response from this on the forum, this question. That's nakerscientist.com forward slash forum. Uh, Graham D, Linda, and also my mum said that it was better to unplug your TV during a storm. And TechMind, as he calls himself, advised that touching any plugs and leads during a storm isn't a brilliant idea. And Turnip Sock says a non-fiberglass car is a very good safe haven. And John in Colchester points out on the telephone to the show this, this week that lightning strikes induce thousands of volts in the mains, anything from 240 volts up to 2,240 volts, and it's this pulse that can do the damage. So if you want to protect your TV, you should also think about plumbing in a surge protector. Diana. Well, that's a lot of power. Uh, let's hope this next question doesn't get quite so sparky. Hi, I'm Dr Raj from Sri Lanka. My question is this. During the 1970s, we were told that oil would run out by the year 2000. Then new reserves were discovered, and now they say 2100 is when we will be starved of oil. Is it possible that we'll find more oil reserves in time to come? And why have we missed them before? Can the price of oil make smaller reserves economically viable? Thank you. Some forms of oil are not as flammable as others, but what about this burning issue? My name's Graham Watson, and I come from South London. And my question is, uh, occurred to me when I was listening to the Olympic torch being discussed recently, I was wondering how you transport a naked flame on an aeroplane. It has to be a naked flame, I think, to, to uh, continue the Olympic spirit, but even without the current security situation, surely it must be quite difficult. But it's obviously possible, so I wondered how they did it. So if you know anything of the future of oil supplies and exactly what happens to the Olympic torch in the air if it hasn't been nicked yet, then get in touch by emailing questionoftheweek at thenakedscientist.com or take part in our forum debate at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. Thank you, Diana. Do you reckon the torch went through Terminal 5? If it did, it's a, it's a terminal situation. <laughs> it that, would get it? lost forever, wouldn't it? Thank you very much. That's Diana O'Carroll with this week's Question of the Week. Stripping down science. Okay, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and Richard Van Norden. Now it's time to find out if Dave will really go through with it. Does he trust his kitchen science sufficiently to sample water extracted from his own urine using sunlight and cling film? Let's go back to Ben and Dave to find out. Welcome back to Kitchen Science, or should I say the Dave Hansel Urine Purification Challenge. We're back in Dave's garden now. We've had our saucepans full of salty or otherwise water out in the sun for a couple of hours. And so now Dave's going to explain how this works and why we should have drinkable water. So Dave, what has actually happened? 
Well, when the sun shines on the black pot at the bottom, it's going to heat it up, and that's going to make the water quite warm. And when water gets warm, even if it's below its boiling point, some of the water molecules have got enough energy to escape and turn into a gas. We call this water vapour, and the water evaporates. Now, that will make the gas inside the pot really, really quite humid, and there's nowhere for that moisture to go because it's trapped there by the cling film. So the water molecules evaporate off the liquid we've put in there, in my case, salty water, in your case, we, and that gets trapped by the cling film, so it can't go anywhere, so the humidity goes up. But what about the salt that's in there? Doesn't that join it? Well, salt has a much, much, much higher boiling point than water, thousands of degrees centigrade, so it's not going to evaporate at all. So the salt's got a really high boiling point, so it doesn't evaporate with the water, but what about all the different chemicals that you've got in your pot? Well, most of them are salts as well and will have pretty high boiling points, so shouldn't evaporate either. So what we should be left in the vapour is just pure water vapour? Yeah, that's the idea. And then when it touches the cold cling film on the top, then that can lose its energy again and condense and form little droplets of water. If you look closely, you'll see lots of little droplets of water cling to the cling film. It's a bit like my bathroom window after I've had a shower. There's lots of condensation on it. Yes, exactly the same thing's happening then. Water's evaporating from the hot water in the shower and condensing on the cold mirror. But once it's condensed onto the cling film, doesn't it just drop back into the salty water? Well, that's the cunning thing about weighting the middle of the cling film. That will mean there's a kind of way for the water to run down the cling film, form drops and drip into our little shot glass. So in theory, all we've got in the shot glass is pure, clean, distilled water. That's the plan, yes. So I've got the shot glass out. There's certainly a few mil of water in this, so uh, let's see if it tastes salty. Here we go. That actually doesn't taste salty at all. Now, I need to check, Dave, that you haven't been cheating and that this is, in fact, salty water. So I'll just stick my finger in the water that's left and taste that. Ah, yeah, yes, that's like seawater. It's really, really very salty. Yeah. Okay, so you've proved to me that we can get pure water out of salt water, but are you now willing to put your faith in your own science and taste the water you've purified from your own wee? I guess I will, then. <laughs> okay, then, Dave, well, let's get this one out as well. I think it's probably best if you uh, if you just dip your finger in this rather than wiping the wee off the bottom. Actually, you've got even more water in there than we had from the salty water. Why might that be? To get this to work, the liquid inside has to be as warm as possible. And the urine started off pretty warm. So it had a bit of a head start. Indeed. <laughs> OK, then, Dave, well, uh, go for it. Let's see how this tastes. It tastes of water. I, I have to say I have no experience of drinking wee itself, but that tastes to me like perfectly clean, fresh water. Well, I'm glad to see you put your science on the line and test this out. But that does look clear water. It doesn't look at all yellow like the water that's left in there. So where do we use this bit of science in the real world? Well, it's the way nature purifies all the water around us every day. What happens is water evaporates off the sea forms large amounts of water vapour and as that rises it cools again and forms little tiny droplets in clouds those droplets join together and form bigger droplets and eventually fall as nice fresh rain So what we've made in a saucepan is effectively a small weather system Very, very small, yes (laughs) But this is obviously quite an efficient and easy way for you to get drinkable water out of water that otherwise would be waste Do people use this trick to clean water for themselves? 
It's definitely a recognised way of getting fresh water if you're in a desert or if you're on a boat in the middle of the sea and with no fresh water. There are some people who are looking at trying to do this on a much bigger, sort of more commercial scale to take salt out of water in order to use drinking water in desert regions. So as long as you're near the sea, you can take that salty water and apply a trick very similar to this and wind up with clean, drinkable water. That's their plan, yes. Fantastic. And I think after this, after drinking water purified from your own wee, nobody can ever question your dedication to kitchen science again. But that's all we have for kitchen science this week. We'll be back with more very soon. Thank you very much, Ben and Dave. That's the price you pay for coming to work on The Naked Scientist. Uh, Send in your application forms to me, chris at thenakedscientist.com, if you want to come and work and do things like that. Uh, Anyway, um, you can try that experiment if you want to at home. All the details are on our uh, website. Um, You you won't have to drink urine, it's okay. You can do it on any sunny day just using things like salty water. The instructions are at nakedscientist.com forward slash kitchen science. And there are also lots of details of the other experiments we do each week if you want to have a go at them. Now, I've got a question for you, Richard, which has come in from Mark in Bletchley and he says, would a lightning strike affect the small components that you were talking about earlier? Yeah, I'm, I'm fairly sure it would because uh, with all these components you've got electrons running through them, that's what gives you the electricity that's the, the negative charge there and I think a lightning strike would disrupt them just as much as it would disrupt other electric components yeah. Anything, it might turn it into a sort of miniature barbecue because carbon burns beautifully in air so if you put mm. a big enough current through it will get hot and presumably ignite. Perhaps so, yeah Perhaps so. Well, a uh, question for you, uh, Chris. Uh, Roger Rowe from Germany says, when he eats one of those uh, fizzy, sugary tablet sort of dextrose energy sweets, he gets a really cool sensation in his mouth. He was wondering... Cool, as in cold. Yeah, cool. Yeah, oh. cold, cold. And uh, he was wondering whether that was the same as with the menthol thing that we were talking about uh, previously, that where men- menthol is fooling your nerve cells and what's happening with the dextrose sweets. So is dextrose doing the same thing? I don't think so, because dextrose is another term for glucose. That's just sugar. I think it's, in fact, a clever chemical trick going on here, why his mouth feels cold when he sucks this sweet. And I think the reason is that... To make the sweets fizzy and have that effervescent effect, you mix in them sodium bicarbonate, which is an alkali substance, with some citric acid. And they're both dry, but when they dissolve in your mouth, the water in your mouth makes most of these dry crystals become liquids and then they can react together and you get a neutralisation reaction that has an endothermic effect. In other words, it gets colder. When you react that acid and that alkali together, they actually get colder and this makes your mouth feel colder. So I think it's a chemical reaction. It's one of these unusual reactions that makes things get colder, not hotter. So I think that's the answer. That's it for this week. Thank you very much to our guests, uh, Elaine Bell, Asif Din and Karl Krishelnitsky. Uh, also, thank you to our wonderful production team, Ben Valsler, Dave Ansel, Mira Senthaling and Petra Minch and Diana O'Carroll. Next week, we'll be looking at the science of diamonds to find out what makes them so hard, how you can spot a fake and how they can be used to produce incredibly powerful lasers. Send your questions, chris at nakedscientist.com. See you next week. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information... Look us up online at nakedscientists.com.